You might know the two women who will be moderating this first session talking story more by their professional moniker than by their individual names. Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva have been producing radio together since 1979. You've heard the Kitchen Sisters, kitchen sisters all over the public radio landscape, most recently perhaps by way of the Lost and Found Sound series, which they produce executively with Jay Allison. But you may not know, for instance, that Davia directed and produced a PBS documentary on the making of an Italian doo-wop gospel children's musical broadcast, <laughs> or that Nikki recently consulted professionally on a museum exhibit called World, The World Famous Tree Circus. You can ask them about that later. These women are obviously and incredibly special, both individually and as a radio-making team. Please now join in talking story with the Kitchen Sisters. We want to thank Julie um, and Joanna for doing so much work. We've worked with, with them for months and months and months on this, and it's gone through many uh, permutations as we've moved through the last few months. Uh, talking stories seem like a great way to begin this. It's what we all do, it's what we all love, and it's why we're all here. Uh, Davia and I are especially um, interested in this whole conference because it was just about 20 years ago, or maybe a little less than 20 years ago, that we were in a conference very similar to this, uh, an Airly conference uh, that was produced by Larry Josephson. Larry? And we, we have to say that uh, it really was the inspiration for so much of our radio work. It was uh, a time when we had had exactly one piece on National Public Radio. Uh, we'd had, had one piece rejected, one by, piece National rejected by National Public Radio. It was a moment when we met uh, Jay Allison, uh, whom we work with still to this day, and so many, many, many people in this room. Um, and it's so wonderful to see you all here again and to see so many new faces here, too. It's, it's an encouraging moment, I think, in radio. Uh, Dave? We sat together at that conference listening for days. I mean, we just all stayed in rooms and listened to each other's work or talked about each other's work or stayed up late drinking and dancing and having fun together. And out of that, I think a lot of the work of the last 20 years in public radio was shaped. And uh, I have a, we were talking this morning, we both have that same feeling about this conference, that for all of us to have some time to just uh, sit with the kind of sound that we do and talk story, uh, wonderful things will come. We are so honored to have this panel with us this morning. When we were casting this panel, we wanted to have a variety of storytellers with a lot of different techniques, a lot of different approaches, and we wanted to have people that worked in more than the medium of radio. And I bet that's true for a lot of the people in the room you do radio stories, but either by necessity to make ends meet or passion and obsession, you tell stories because in a variety of mediums. Radio is something we love, but also storytelling is as much at the heart of it. And so that was one of the criterions, not just to work in radio, but radio and something else. Because as you heard, Nikki works in museums. I work in film as well as radio and writing. So we just uh, also pick people for the panel who we just wanted to hear their thoughts on storytelling, people who uh, could trigger a conversation. Uh, so many of you could be on this panel as well, the work you do, your love of stories, so we hope you'll participate as well. We're going to have sort of a, we have a, a pattern and a, a schedule, but at the same time there's room for you to ask questions or uh, participate if you'd like. So we thought we'd begin with little introductions of everybody, and then we'll start playing some work and get going. Robert Krulwich is with us. And Robert, uh, no matter where he goes, he always comes back to radio. He started at Pacifica, and um, when I just was asking him about his beginnings in radio, he was sort of thrown in. You can, before yeah. I even go on, just this tell me. sort of eat your heart out. I went to law school and graduated and had no idea. I didn't want to do that. And I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. And I thought, well, what can I do? And I thought, well, I can't explain stuff. And the President of the United States was being impeached at the time. So I, 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 since I went to law school, I knew about that. So I went into my living room, and I made a tape called 
what impeachment really means. I mean, it doesn't mean that he leave because he had to can he still go to work. Do the judges wear black robes? Who are the judges? I did this for some reason as Howard Cosell, a sportscaster. <laughs> and uh, not knowing what to do with the tape that I had made, but proud of it in a private sort of way. <laughs> I tucked it into the box of the aforementioned Larry Josephson at WBAI in New York. I just stuck, I was so scared and embarrassed and in love with radio because I listened to the station all the time. So on one of those volunteer days, I went to answer the phones, and I put the tape in Larry's box, and then I stared at all the people that I heard on the radio. That's what she looks like, kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, he called and said to bring my group to a, a room. I didn't have a group. And I was so scared that I turned around and, and simply re-narrated. He wanted me to re-engineer it for some reason. And uh, <laughs> to make a long story short, they aired it. Nothing else happened. I took it to many radio stations. They all stared at me. I went back. My dad told me I had to take my bar exam. I did. Leaving the bar exam, I saw in the newspaper that the impeachment had actually begun. And I thought, oh, darn. I thought, well, at least I can sit on a couch at a public radio station, which for some reason mattered to me. So I, this was a fateful couch-sitting moment. I, uh, I went to WBAI, and I sat on the couch listening to the impeachment. The impeachment begins with Chairman Rodino going, and there's a bomb scare, a two-and-a-half-hour bomb scare. And Pacifica was so poor, they'd made telephone calls the five stations to Washington, but they couldn't make a second. They couldn't hang up. They couldn't, leave, they couldn't take back the air. So Paz Cohen the sole survivor of an extraordinarily internecine battle between everybody at Pacifica who had about a month to kill each other. She's left alone in this room with nothing to say for two and a quarter hours. And she, as it happens, had brought the bomb anarchist's cookbook, a bomb-making book, perhaps the single most inappropriate piece of literature you can <laughs> And in desperation, after describing the couches, the carpet, the dogs, the police, and so forth, she began reading from the bomb-making book, at which point... Station managers from the five stations with their available phone call money called each other and said, what are we going to do? And they said, there must be somebody who knows about the impeachment. I am sitting on a couch at that moment. The, I mean, mind you, I have not covered a fire, interviewed a policeman. I've, not, I've never reported in my life, except, of course, in the bathtub and to myself all the time. And the door opens, and the station, the guy, Nick, guy named Nick, who was the news director, says, can you go to Washington and on a cloud, I began my career the next day covering the single greatest political I was sitting next to Connie Chung on radio, and who had no one had heard of, but the guy over here was uh, John Chancellor. You know, that's like sitting next to Abraham Lincoln. So, and uh, that's how I began. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than so that. So he goes from Pacifica to Rolling Stone to NPR, does business and economics corresponding, and edits and shapes so many of our so much of our thinking in those early days in radio, and then to CBS and all kinds of corresponding for CBS, ABC News, where many of you probably know Robert's work now on Nightline and World News Tonight, all kinds of PBS specials, but never straying completely away from radio. And that's why Robert is here with us today. Storytelling and all those facets across all those years with such an unusual approach. Paul Oster is with us as well. And um, Paul is sort of new to the world of radio, as many of you know. He is a novelist, a screenwriter, a poet, a director, a radio storyteller and curator. This guy is a fount of stories. His movies, you probably know them, Smoke and Blue in the Face, made with Wayne Wang, Lulu at the Beach, his own directing, and some of his novels, Timbuktu, New York Trilogy, and his memoirs, Hand to Mouth, An Invention of Solitude, and most recently, the NPR National Story Project that he and Weekend All Things Considered have created, uh, especially with Jackie Lydon, who many of you know as host, often host, of Weekend All Things Considered. And also, um, Jackie started in radio here. Yes. and Only uh, blocks from this hotel. Well, uh, my story is uh, in, in Robert's vein because I uh, had 11 different part-time jobs after I got out of school, including... Uh, being a professional uh, circus girl at the rodeo, as the the girl, the cupcake rider it was called, the one who carried the flags, did that kind of thing, a traveling fly-by-night rodeo. This was a very bad career choice, but my idea was good, which was to t t tell about this later, to become an overnight journalistic sensation by chronicling this rodeo. <laughs> it was an excellent idea, but at age 20, is when I when I graduated, I was just a bit too young, and I wound up running on the fly from the rodeo. 
and arrived here in Chicago uh, not a month later, started all these uh, different um, part-time jobs uh, loosely related to traveling, writing, and that time taking pictures very unsuccessfully. And one of my contacts, I by then was teaching journalism part-time at a junior college, mind you, never having published anything in a magazine or a newspaper uh, in the world. And uh, my student, who was five years older than, than I was, said to me that she would like to, me to recommend her for a job doing the traffic on WIND, the Westinghouse station here in Chicago, which I'm sure no one here will remember. Um, 5.20 a.m., it was an all-news, 24-hour station with great characters working for it, and uh, they were looking for someone to do the traffic between uh, f 5 in the morning and 9 a.m. You had to be there by 3 a.m. And I said to uh, my student, Vivian, I don't think that you'll get up at 1 o'clock in the morning, but I was thinking to myself, but I will. <laughs> she reminded me about that on a bus about five years later. I met her. <laughs> so I called them up. And I said, I hear you're looking for someone to do the traffic. Oh, oh. I know. Isn't that awful? It is. Isn't it awful how it all turned out? There's sort of a Lana Turner. <laughs> really a noble history. Exactly. <laughs> and they said, uh, well, have you driven a, a taxi? And I said, oh, absolutely. I drive a hack. Never thinking that, you know, they could check this. And they said, well, of course we knew you were lying, but you sounded cute and we wanted to meet you. That is it, you know. And, but I did, I'll tell you, we all fell in love with each other. The characters at that station, I someday want to write a book about. They were amazing people, the old kind of radio people. But, you know, the, the afternoon drive guy would remove his toupee after each performance. <laughs> pretty, pretty quickly, uh, I, I, I was as smitten with radio as if it had been in my mind all the time from these storytellers at that station. And one day, um, as I wrote about in a memoir that I wrote later, opened the door to NPR's Chicago Bureau and felt that the world had opened to me because on the radio I could inhabit the voices of all the people I spoke of. So that was 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, like all long relationships, I tease and say National Public Radio is the longest relationship of my adult life, <laughs> and it's had every ricochet that a long relationship would have. But I'm really glad to be here today and really glad to be doing the story project with Paul, one of the best things we've ever done, I think, at NPR. So that's who's before you today. And we thought we would start with a story. And we thought we'd start with Robert Krolwich's story. And uh, there's something so demonic and gleeful about Robert's work and his pacing and his conspiratorial quality and his sense of humanity. And that's what led us to choose this story. And because there are so many choices as a storyteller that he's made in this piece um, and so many techniques and such an unusual way of entering into a story, we thought it might be a good place to begin the conversation. The story of the Krasilovskis, one of the great commercial rivalries in New York history, began when Sam Krasilovsky opened a moving company years and years and years ago. Way back, way back. Uh, I can understand even before my time, and I've been with the firm 22 years. Peter Percosio runs the office at the Krasilovsky Trucking Company in Brooklyn. I imagine there was a big family of brothers, uncles, cousins, and they were all very competitive, you know. Competitive is putting it mildly. The firm started in 1904 when Sam Krasilovsky and his brother Dave Krasilovsky formed a hauling company called Sam Krasilovsky and Bro, the bro is for brother, and they would uh, move heavy things like church bells and statues, and to help them they hired their nephew, Mike Krasilovsky. For 20 years, everything was fine with uh, Sam, Dave, and Mike until Uncle Dave decided to bring his sons into the business. Under the circumstances, Mike had to disassociate himself from the uncles and start on his own. That is Mike's brother, who will serve as our narrator in this story. Now, it is the late 1930s. There are now two Krasilovsky moving companies, Mike's and his uncle's. To remind customers that he was now in business for himself, Mike took out a series of display ads in the New York telephone book on the very page where the Krasilovskis are listed. And the ad said, Remember Mike, there is only one Krasilovsky. In addition, his brother says, He uh, put Remember Mike on all the trucks, but it didn't work. Too many customers could not remember which Krasilovsky was which. They just opened the phone book and called any Krasilovsky. And that is when Mike got this incredible idea. He figured 
that if he could move ahead of his uncles in the telephone book, people would see his name first and then they'd call him first instead of the other Krasilovsky. So he decided to add a new listing in the telephone book. He took out the V in Krasilovsky and put in a U. That made it Krasilowski. K-R-A-S-I-L-O-U. Now that moved him one entry ahead of his uncle, since by the alphabet, U's always precede V's. But Mike Krasilowski, as he was now called, was not prepared for the perfidy of his cousin, Milton Krasilowski. Milton. Milton Krasilowski was another young son, son of David Krasilowski. In the early 1940s, Milton started a new trucking company called Krasilowski with a U, as was the case with Mike. But to move ahead of Mike, he changed his first name from Milton to Mick. M-I-C-K Krasilowski with a U, hoping that uh, he would be ahead of Mike in the listings. Which, of course, he was. The uncles, meanwhile, anxious to catch up, joined forces with Milton or Mick and created the Krasilowski Safe Company. They dropped the V in Krasilowski, put in an O, so the uncle's Krasilowski moved ahead of Mike's Krasilowski. Mike was uh, quite upset. As well he might have been. For revenge, he countered with a great leap, taking over the Atlas Safety Company, which moved him to the front of the telephone book, leaving the K's behind to the finer air of the A section. But one year later, the uncles were on the same page. The Acme Safe Company was a division of S. Krasilovsky and brothers. According to Mike's brother, by the mid-1950s, even though Mike still had only one moving business in Brooklyn on Metropolitan Avenue, Mike Krasilovsky, by this time, had 18 listings under 18 different names in the telephone book, while the uncles had 13 listings. Yes, we had listings throughout the yellow pages and white pages for one company so that we could get all the listings ahead of the other relatives. Did you do it for fun, or...? No, this was not for fun. This was very serious. There was no reason we felt that another member of the family that has just walked in should capitalize on the name of Krasilovsky. The final salvo was fired by the uncles. Actually, it was a cousin on the uncle's side named Marvin. He created the AAA Acme Krasilovsky Safe Company. <laughs> After that, the public was so completely confused that, according to Richard Krasilovsky, all the Krasilovsky businesses began losing customers. It does affect the business when people say, who, who are you and who do you belong to? Mike died in the 1960s. His wife sold the business and changed her name from Krasilovsky to Kras and then moved to Florida. <laughs> Mike's brother, Monroe, stayed in the business. He now calls his firm, however, the Empire Safe Company. He and his son, Richard, would like to use the name Krasilovsky. It is, after all, their name but they don't dare because there is now a whole new generation of Krasilovskys moving into the phone book. The original Acme company has now been split, so they are all over the lot. There are now more sons. And there are more names. Here, with my colleague Margot Adler, we're going to read you the latest set of listings from the current New York telephone book and the New York Yellow Pages. Margot? AAA Acme Krasilovsky. Krasilovsky, division of Acme Safe. Krasilovsky, Mike, Trucking and Millwright Company. Krasilovsky Brothers, Mike and Monroe. Empire Krasilovsky Safe Company. Krasilovsky Brothers Safe Company, Division of Safe Smiths, Inc. Krasilovsky Division of Acme Safe. Mike Krasilovsky Safes. Monroe Krasilovsky Safe. Krasilovsky Safe Company, Inc. Krasilovsky Safe Collection. Acme Safe Company, Krasilovsky Division, not connected with any other Krasilovsky. Robert. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that for a long time. Can you deconstruct that for us? And how did you ever decide to do it? Why? How, tell us, <laughs> how did this come about? Oh, come on. I mean, that's like, you know, if, that, if you, something like that fell into your lap, you'd sit right on it, no? Yeah. Okay, so the idea comes to you, and then yeah. what? Well, the interviews were terrible, as you could kind of hear. They're very, very short, right? So... Um, yeah, this is what happens. You, when you meet people who can't tell a story for their life, they, it's this ridiculous situation. They don't find it funny, ironic, or they have no distance from it at all. So you uh, interview them, and you chop them into teeny, teeny little bits. <laughs> so basically, uh, this is all you, you can do this in almost any medium, but you, you deal with what you got. And then when you get a, a situation like that, you just get gleeful, but you keep your glee slightly under wraps so that people can kind of 
sort of share it with you. And, and, um, and I, I guess it, that's kind of a writing style where the actualities are tucked into the lines. So it's almost like you're writing sentences and then you just put the tape in as accent. And in different media, you could do it different ways. But essentially, the job in this sort of thing, I think, is when you tell a story, the, the sounds of stories, certainly the NPR sound, you can really tell it now. When you turn to NPR, you know in about 14 mini, milliseconds that you're listening to an NPR station because there's something. Or when you're turning to, like in my current office, the sound of, sound, that sound. <laughs> so you know, if you know that sound's coming at you, what you, or at least what I do is, it's sort of like listening to music. You, you hear a predictable musical content, whether it's NPR or ABC or whatever, and you just undercut it. You just, um, you write to a rhythm or to a music that is different from your neighbors. And it's, it's a slightly lonely and it's, it gets you in trouble and people look at you like you're a little bit crazy. And, but you, it, it's a wily thing. You're trying to create a meter and a beat that is itself a little surprising so that people don't hear the usual pattern. And then if, they, if the music has changed, then they wonder what you're going to do, and then they listen a little closer. So it's a and, – and what pattern you choose seems to be mostly what comes out of your soul. I mean, I find things sort of funny, and, and so I address them that way. But if you found things sort of sad, you could do it – it doesn't really matter. As long as when you put it on the air and you hear it, you can say to yourself – this is what I've always thought – is that's me. That's nobody else. That's me. Now, companies, NPR, ABC, whomever, will always want to say, that's us. It's a natural urge on the half part of any enterprise, and you can't hate them for it because they just do it because that's who they are. But your job is to subvert gently, implacably, incorrigibly, and keep smiling. <laughs> but inside, you should have murder between your eyes. <laughs> you heard it here. I love how post. you pulled in Margot at the end and these different voices and they're coming over the telephone and you have, and just We pulled in every, anybody who came into the bureau, we would put, like we had, anybody who was just waiting to be interviewed by Bob Edwards, we would sometimes say, you, come over here, I want you to sing a little, or whatever it was. <laughs> so we had, uh, we had my, we had all kinds of economic models, but we had um, pretty much, uh, some of my favorite things are Ira Flato and I trying to sing. We wanted to do a piece on just-in-time inventory control, another one of my odd, obsessions. And uh, we decided to use Frank Sinatra singing Just in Time. But of course, the song gets kind of mushy and romantic and doesn't seem to be uh, getting radios to the front of an automobile line, So, which was my narrative line. So we had this guy, Frankie, at the front of the line who was waiting for the car radio to get there just in time. And we kept saying, Frankie, is it there yet? And he's going, just in time. So, but we had to uh, sing over Frank Sinatra for the mushy parts. And I remember the complete joy of thinking like they actually paying me for this. Me and Ira and Neil Connor were sitting there trying to figure out how we could match Frank Sinatra's phrasings because his attacks are, are completely unpredictable. But we had to hit, whenever he started talking about girls and stuff instead of automobiles, which was our version, we had to overrun the, override his, his, him and Nelson Riddle. So we spent the whole afternoon trying to figure out how to sing over Nelson Riddle and Frank Sinatra. And that, <laughs> I mean, there are, you know, the only you do this for is you do this for because sometimes you get all chilly with the sheer joy of what you're doing. And uh, it's really sort of sad in between, but you remember those. <laughs> so that's the fun of it. I wonder where you are when you're recording your script and what's going on around you. How you fold yourself into it. Oh, we laid it, Manolio Weatherall, the engineer, would lay out the tapes and I would just, I would, we'd literally play it with space in between. She would, I would, she would keep a sort of fast finger and I would narrate, I, we would put, we put white leader between them, as I remember. This was a while ago. And then I would just narrate right into it. It's the same in television. As I mean, you just narrate right into it. You don't do it later. I, I, cause, cause there's sounds, there's sounds coming into the audience's ear. Someone is talking and they have a certain quality of the way they're talking. So you want to, you know what you're trying to do, but you want to match that moment, that very specific moment. You want to sit right there. So we actually would run, we'd order the, the piece with, and I'd write all the interstitial stuff, and then we'd play the piece, and then I'd just stick in. In this case, since there's much more of me talking in that one, unless I would write the thing, and then Manoli would hit the buttons when it was time. And, uh, and so we did very little actual editing. She would essentially edit with her finger. 
or Jay, when I would work with him, it was the same thing. We did an opera. We would just lay it in, you know, as it, right over the, I mean, the real fun and the danger is you actually, um, you, you do as close to a live performance as you can, and then you edit after, because there's something a little exciting and a little um, dangerous and, most of all, unpredictable. Did the uh, characters in your piece hear the piece after? Oh, yeah. What did they think? I think they're cool with it. Sometimes they're a little surprised. And sometimes, in, in, in certain circumstances, with Paul Volcker in this thing that we did where he was in, stuck into an opera, I did uh, warn him that the context was going to be unusual because <laughs> he was actually talking about how the Federal Reserve Board works in the middle of, uh, you know, coloraturas singing Verdi. <laughs> and you get a little nervous when... Because uh, he was trying to be at the time the Federal Reserve Chairman, and he was a cat. He was the head of the New York Fed, and he was scared this might ruin his. Uh... But so I gave it to his wife, and she slipped it to him for his birthday. So she played it as a birthday party gift to Volker, which is I'm glad I had her on my side. But sometimes you, uh, you know, you take risks, and uh, and the people look at you like you're an idiot, and you. Um, you have to be fairly fierce about what you think is going to happen, and you have to be willing to be wrong. You have to take real failures. I mean, you can put on stuff that people just stare at you with pity. <laughs> and in television, I've had, you know, I've had times, I was, did something with the aforementioned Connie Chung, where she called me and said, don't even come into the office today. They hate us so badly. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, you don't feel good, but it's better than feeling pleasant all the time. <laughs> worse than death. We're going to c- come back to Robert. We're going to keep going, and you're going to hear something from everybody, and you'll hear probably two or three things from everybody. So we were so thrilled to have Jackie and Paul be able to join us as well. And several of us went last evening to see them do a presentation here in Chicago. I don't know. The name tag just slipped. Uh, a book has come out based on the NPR story National Story Project called I Thought My Father Was God, and they were doing a reading last night. And at that moment, we junked the idea of playing tape because we thought we'd do some live radio since they're here. Right. W-H-E-R, a story we did, was out of the third Holiday Inn ever built, so being in a Holiday Inn made us want to go live here. And we thought we would, and we, I think we both feel an affinity to this project because of Lost and Found Sound and the work that Jay did with us and we did with Jay on the quest for sound where we opened a phone line during the 1999 and asked listeners to call in with their recordings that mattered to them, why they saved what they did, why it was important to them, why it would be important to someone else to hear. And about 3,000 people called in in the course of that year and out of that were shaped about a third of the lost and found sound stories, and probably a lot of you heard Jay Allison as the curator of the Quest for Sound. The National Story Project had such an affinity to that. It was a completely different project, but again, turning to listeners, building stories not just out of our own heads, but out of the whole network of people around the country, sort of large-scale collaboration. So it's in that spirit that we invited them as well. And, Paul, we turn to you. Okay, well, uh, I suppose most of you know what this is, this NPR project. It came about by accident. Uh, I'm not a radio person, as Davia said. But I had been interviewed on Weekend All Things Considered a couple of years ago when my last novel was published. And Danny Zwerdling, the host, invited me to participate in the show. It was just an astonishing uh, thing that came out of nowhere. Uh, I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't know. Maybe you can come on and tell stories every once in a while. And, uh, boy, I thought that was just an awful idea, and I had no interest in doing it. But that night when I went home and told my wife about this uh, bizarre offer, she turned it around and said, you know, Think about it this way. Get the listeners to write in their own stories, their true stories about their lives. And if you get enough submissions, it it could be really pretty extraordinary. And that was the moment when the light bulb went off in my head, and I thought, absolutely. What what an opportunity to find out what people are thinking and and, uh, how they've been living their lives. And 
um, we'd launched the National Story Project two years ago, and the flood of material was just amazing. And I think the first year we got 4,000 written stories from people all over the country. And Davia wanted me to read from the preface, the introduction to the anthology that I've put together now, which includes 180 of the what I think to be the best work that I received, uh, which explains it. Uh, this is about the first broadcast. I, I told the listeners that I was looking for stories. The stories had to be true, and they had to be short. But there would be no restrictions as to subject matter or style. What interested me most, I said, were stories that defied our expectations about the world, anecdotes that revealed the mysterious and unknowable forces at work in our lives, in our family histories, in our minds and bodies, in our souls. In other words, true stories that sounded like fiction. I was talking about big things and small things, tragic things and comic things, any experience that felt important enough to set down on paper. They shouldn't worry if they had never written a story, I said. Everyone was bound to know some good ones, and if enough people answered the call to participate, we would inevitably begin to learn some surprising things about ourselves and each other. The spirit of the project was entirely democratic. All listeners were welcome to contribute, and I promised to read every story that came in. People would be exploring their own lives and experiences, but at the same time they would be part of a collective effort, something bigger than just themselves. With their help, I said, I was hoping to put together an archive of facts, a museum of American reality. The interview was broadcast on the first Saturday in October, exactly one year ago today. Well, now that's two years since, it's been a year since I wrote this preface. Since that time, I have received more than 4,000 submissions. This number is many times greater than what I had anticipated. And for the past 12 months, I have been awash in manuscripts, floating madly in an ever-expanding sea of paper. Some of the stories are, are written by hand. Others are typed. Still others are printed out from emails. Every month, I have scrambled to choose five or six of the best ones and turned them into a 20-minute segment to be aired on Weekend All Things Considered. It has been singularly rewarding work, one of the most inspiring tasks I have ever undertaken. But... It has had its difficult moments as well. On several occasions, when I have been particularly swamped with material, I have read 60 or 70 stories at a single sitting. And each time I have done that, I have stood up from the chair feeling pulverized, absolutely drained of energy. So many emotions to contend with, so many strangers camped out in the living room, so many voices coming at me from so many different directions. On those evenings, for the space of two or three hours, I have felt that the entire population of America has walked into my house. I didn't hear America singing. I heard it telling stories. I think then Jackie was going to read <laughs> one of the loopier submissions we got uh, from someone uh, who lives in Chicago. Yes, she does. This is a story by Freddie Lewis, and it's called... Le Levin. I'm sorry. It's okay. Thank you. Boy, that's good. story by Freddie Levin, and it's called Why I Am Anti-Fur. Can I interrupt? Freddie Levin wanted to be with us today. She was at the event last night, but she's an art teacher in Evanston, Illinois. So yeah. she... Um, just so and you know, they brought all the contributors. local contributors to their event last night and they all joined them on stage and read from their own stories. And we've been doing this around the country. Uh, we had 700 people in San Francisco, uh, 300 people in Boston. We're going to do a huge reading in New York on, on November 7th uh, that we hope might be on the radio. Seeing these contributors tell their stories, I have to tell you for, for both of us. Read their stories. There's a difference. They're actually reading. They're reading their stories. And all these stories are written. They're works of literature, however primitive some of them might be, they are uh, an earnest effort by all kinds of people to make uh, written stories. Right. And they, but they boomerang. They boomerang the things they wrote and you edited, and things you read, mm -hmm. not things we've heard them say, stories you, you uh, tell out loud, but of course stories on the page. And this, this, these are Americans telling what I think is the essence of being a, a 
being a thinking, feeling American, and it's a, a sort of nice thing to have distilled at this anxious time and to remind us of, of what we love and cherish. So this is why I am anti-fur. Uncle Morris had eyes the color of Windex. He wore pinky rings and fedoras and cashmere top coats to die for. He smelled of bay rum and Cuban cigars, a combination even my seven-year-old self found intoxicating. He could tell a great story. In his youth, he ran away to Toronto and for a short time pursued a career as a professional wrestler under the name of Murray. <laughs> there, he met Aunt Faye and Aunt Ray. Uncle Morris could not say no to women and seldom tried, so he married them both. Aunt Ray was so unlikable, even her own babies found her irritating. She had a daughter with Morris who looked just like Whitey Ford and wouldn't speak to either of them from the day she was born. <laughs> with Aunt Faye, he had twin boys named Irwin and Sherwin. Supposedly, one was brilliant and the other slow, but we never knew which was which. <laughs> Forbidden to ask outright, my brother and I spent hours devising subtle tests that would reveal their true natures, but never with any conclusive results. The two women lived in separate apartments on either side of town. They knew about each other, and no doubt because of Uncle Morris's charms, they both decided to live with the arrangement. Uncle Morris put a great deal of time and money into keeping Faye and Ray happy. It wasn't an easy task. There were items of jewelry, up-to-date appliances, and wall-to-wall -wall carpeting that had to be bought in batches of two. But more than anything, in those cold Canadian neighborhoods, both women wanted fur coats. Uncle Morris could only afford one. Thereafter, much of his time was spent driving the coat back and forth to opposite <laughs> sides of Toronto so that Faye and Ray could each make use of it. It was especially hard in the winter. The fur got around more as a coat than it had as a mink. <laughs> this began to take its toll on Uncle Morris. Combine the pressures of the coat with a lifelong diet of pastrami and red pop, and a heart attack seemed almost inevitable. <laughs> In the short space of time during which Uncle Morris rose from the table, clutching his chest and actually hit the floor, the coat disappeared. The family was instantly and irrevocably divided. A vast Gordian knot of relatives sifted into two camps. One thought Faye had the coat, the other Ray. Lies were told, truths were told. The lies and the truths were equally damaging. There was yelling, there was crying. There was the stealing of knickknacks. <laughs> the coat was never seen again. Years later, I was helping my mother clean out a basement storage area. What's this, I asked, as I pulled out what appeared to be a moth-eaten bear suit from the depths of the closet. I heard a damning silence and breathed in the unmistakable odors of mothballs and shalimar. I looked at my mother. There was a distinct lack of eye contact. Oh, God, I gasped. This is Faye and Ray's coat. You took it. It was you. My four-foot, ten-inch mother flew across the room with surprising strength and ferocity and pinned me against the wall. She grabbed my shirt and hissed, You must never tell. Take it easy, I whined. If you kill me, you'll be left with just my brother. Ever practical, she eased her grip and turned to the matter at hand. What should we do now, she asked. I didn't know. If she confessed, they'd kill her. I picked up the coat. It was so huge and heavy. Faye and Ray had been big women. I tried it on and turned to look in the mirror. Just then, my two-year-old toddled into the room. He took one look at me and screamed and screamed and screamed until I took it off. <laughs> It was so wonderful to hear Freddie read that last night. As Jackie, your reading was, was great too. But and then no, someone asked <laughs> someone asked her uh, if she wrote and why she wrote it, and she said that uh, she had been spending a lot of time going through family photos and writing down stories so that they could be passed down in her family because she felt as if they were being lost and forgotten. And I, it, it was 
I, I just love this project for hearing each of those people talk about their motivation. I mean, I think it was definitely Paul's persuasive words on the radio, but uh, there was some deep need to put these things down on paper and share them. But you never would know ahead of time if you're going to get a line like, there was the stealing of knickknacks. Knickknacks, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, that's where it becomes good writing, oh, this which is, is what we have well to talk written. about as storytellers. Oh, this is, this yeah. is very sharp and witty and, uh, you know, better than a lot of things you read in literary magazines, let me tell you. <laughs> so maybe one more question. Can you talk just a little bit about um, deciding on what was going to be on the air? How did you turn this into radio? Uh, you got these written pages, but what made it radio for... Well, um, you know, the stories would come in pretty steadily over the course of the month. Usually after a broadcast, there'd be a big surge of submissions. And then as the month went along, they would diminish. Um, any story that I read that had any interest to me at all, I would put in a box in my room. And I would just keep this pile of potential stories uh, alive. And as it came time to prepare the program, I just started pulling them out, reading them again. I'd, I'd let them sit with me for a while. Sometimes uh, a story would be in that box for three or four months before I used it. Um, I found that if I kept thinking about a story, it meant that it was good. Uh, I didn't want to make judgments that were too quick. Sometimes there was something that had some superficial charm, but um, finally didn't hold up over the long haul. Um, then I'd pick out ten, and I'd start to, well, which ones work together? Does this contradict that one, or does this one repeat what the other one did? And eventually just come up with five or six that would, I hope, uh, work against and with each other. Twice we did um, theme programs. For Valentine's Day, I, I asked people to send in love stories. and and uh, for Memorial Day, war stories. And that was a, a, an incredible response. I got things about every war that America has ever fought in between the Civil War and the Vietnam War. Civil War, of course, being relatives of the people. I got documents, letters from, you know, Civil War on both North and South sides. Um, um, and I would often, in fact, mostly have to uh, edit the stories very severely in order to present them on the radio. So something like this, Why I Am Anti-Fur, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to be done because it's too long. You see, we only had 20 minutes. So um, I would summarize parts of it and then use uh, what I thought to be telling quotations from, from, from the story. And uh, sometimes I'd completely redo them in the third person. This is an interesting thing to me because uh, sometimes a story just has legs and you just don't know where to place them. And you can imagine, uh, in the movie Smoke, there was a, at the end of the movie, Harvey Keitel does a sort of, if this were a journalist thing, it was like a, a two-camera tell, but it's, he does a, a straight narration. Eight minutes. Yeah, I mean, Eight it's minutes. very rare in the movies for someone just to talk and tell a story. But then on the credits of the movie, somebody, I guess, had or, uh, anticipating the story, had tried to make it into a movie story. So there's the exact same story phrased in normal movie terms. And it's very interesting to me to watch the exact same thing rendered in different forms. In that particular case, either because Harvey Keitel is such a good actor or something, the uh, straight telling was extraordinarily compelling, and maybe because it came second, or maybe because this is just the case, the movie version, a little less so. And they, whoever thought so, I guess, stuck it under the credits. Well, but... It's very interesting that you bring it up. I don't want to digress too much. But when we originally were planning to uh, present that scene on screen, we were planning to go back and forth between Harvey's face and the black and white images uh, which would represent what he was saying. We started editing it, and it was a fascinating process because Harvey's voice was so compelling. You're listening to him tell the story, and every time we cut to the uh, visualization of that material, you'd lose track of what he was saying for an instant. You'd lose the flow of the story. So while in the beginning we thought it would be half and half, um, we um, 
started editing out the images and editing out, and so there was just one or two, and finally we just bagged the whole thing. But we had this nice little black and white film, and uh, which we found very charming in its own right, so we, we used it with the credits at the end. It's really just a little mm -hmm. um, little present, you know, a little chocolate bar for, for, the, for the eyes at the, at the end of the movie, but, but the real story is in the words coming out of his mouth. And that's something I think people should think about because, you know, you get some tale that you want to tell. You can imagine it this way, you imagine it that way, you imagine it the way. Sometimes you might have the luxury of trying it out different ways. But um, one of the more fascinating things is to see how the thing goes down. I just finished one where I was trying to, there's a guy named Bob Sabiston in Austin who makes, he just, he works with Rick, uh, with a guy who makes the movie Slackers and now has a movie called This Waking Life, which is a, you shoot with a DVD camera, and then he, you paint over the frames. It's, it's actually quite a beautiful and interesting process. And I went down there, and I said, let's, let's, I'm going to sit in a chair, I'm going to tell you stuff, and I just want you to erase everything so that there's just my lips and my nose. So it was the Harvey Keitel idea, but made even less. You, you look at the television screen, and there's almost nothing going on, like one of those Umeo paintings in, in Japan where you put a little dab on the mountaintop, a little cloud, and a little something, and then you can fill in a whole landscape. The thing about radio that is so compelling is that if you use the right descriptive words, not because they want to, but because they can't help themselves, the person cutting carrots or the person washing their clothes or the person driving in the car hears those words, those descriptive words, and starts to paint in their head. And they're not thinking about this, but they become your co-author because they're taking your words and rendering them. And there's something very sticky about that. Television has a big problem. It's very literal. It just presents itself. Movie's the same. Well, I so, want to put in a pitch for the production work, because all of you are radio producers, um, that as fantastic as these stories are, translating them into good radio did take a considerable amount of work. There were two producers who worked on this, Rebecca Davis and Devar Ardalan. And they would kill me if I didn't mention that what went on behind the scenes, because uh, it would take them a, a good day to edit these into, there would be musical, mm -hmm. little musical notes mm -hmm. between each story, uh, a lot of editing of, of the voice, uh, even beyond sometimes what Paul would have edited just to fit that window. Sometimes we would go out into the field to give it a different frame. We went to Coney Island uh, at one point. We went to Ellis Island to tell stories. So while the, so it, it's, it's like what Frank Sinatra used to say, uh, nothing that looks spontaneous is ever unrehearsed. Uh, and also a lot of purity in the tale. We could do it in the studio or we could do it outside, but just by knowing when not to embroider too much, and I know you all know what I'm talking about, when to be minimalist um, is, is, a, is a good thing too. And that's one of the many things that sustained and made this series live. Let's, the production. I, I know some of you in the audience want to join the conversation. Jim? Why don't you go to that microphone? I think they can't hear you. Uh, <laughs> got to speak up if you want to be heard. Yes, indeed. Well, it's just seemed... Can you hear me in the back of the room now? It just seemed that you uh, painted the horns of the dilemma that everybody in this room faces at one point or another. You know, you have this thread of the story, and then maybe you have these sounds, maybe you have this music. And do you, when do you... The question is, you know... Do you just go with the story? When does the sound sort of get in the way, become, like Absolutely. you were just saying, embroidering? That's sort of the question. And there's no, you know, I don't think there's any ever anyone answered, but I heard that question that I hear again and again and again, and I just heard it put another way when you were speaking, and I think we've all faced that question. Well, I guess things can be overproduced, can't they? I mean, you've oh, squashed the very material you're trying to, to bring forth, whether a film or radio, it, it really doesn't matter. And... Uh, that's where uh, talent comes in, an instinct, and just having a feel for uh, how best to bring the material forth. Uh, but curiously, when you were talking about what radio does to the mind of the listener, well, what it is is it's literature, too. I mean, when you're reading words on a page, you're reading a novel, uh, you are participating in creating the images that uh, you see in your head. And that's why... Radio is much closer to literature than it is to film, for example, and why um, it's more powerful in the end. Because we, as listeners and readers, are the essential um, 
connection to make the circuit work. It w wouldn't exist without us. And I, I also, underlining what you said, I, I think if you've had a success with a story and you think, well, I, can I bottle that and use it the next time, you can't. Uh, the, the keeping your instinct wide open turns out to be the trick. So you'll, you know, you'll sing in one occasion and you'll be very quiet the next occasion, but you have to really listen closely to what the tape is telling you. Um, the, once you've organized the story, somehow or other, in some mysterious and really un unexplainable way, the sounds that you've gathered start talking back to you and tell you, shut up, or play music, or laugh a little, or say nothing. But just because they said it the last time doesn't really prepare you for the next time. So once again, there's a sort of terror that, that nothing, no experience, no amount of doing this can, can take away. And the terror is a good thing, a very good thing, because it's what keeps your instincts sharp like a hunter. There was someone else I saw wanting to ask questions, so just head on up to the microphone and then we'll move forward. Paul Schrader has this great quote about screenwriting that I love. He says, scenes are like parties. Come as late as you can and leave as early as you can. <laughs> I actually think that, um, that radio production is very much like film. And I think I got into doing radio because I always wanted to be a filmmaker. And I've made, uh, done a little bit of video, and I still think I like radio a lot better. But I had somebody tell me about a year ago that they had just seen my latest movie, and it was on the radio. And I felt like that was the best compliment I ever got. But I, I thought a lot about like what you're saying about how I think that radio production is a collaboration. It's, it's a film that's collaborated between me, the radio producer, or a radio producer, and the listeners who are creating the scenes in their mind. And that, to me, is like the real power of radio, that I think we collaboratively make these films with our listeners and that it takes the imagination to a level that I don't think happens on television or in the movies. I, I would say that <clears throat> there are two ways to think about the storytelling. One is to just look around for good stories and then tell them when you find them. And the others are, and this is a little less kosher, but you, uh, what Paul did, I don't know where he went, but. Uh, there's a exhibit at MOCA at the, at the Massachusetts, whatever that's, MOCA, Massachusetts OCA. <laughs> Something okay. of contemporary arts, I guess. Where he, he sat, he put uh, chairs in front, of, um, in front of telephone booths all over Brooklyn and just created situations and wondered, like, I, I don't know how any of you have seen this thing. Yeah. It was really interesting. Um, there's a sort of proactive possibility here, too. You know, if you have a day where there's nothing going on and you can't think anything, you can create mischief and just see what happens. It has a little bit of the, of the you know, you're setting up a situation, but as long as you tell the audience that you are, um, you can create environments where stories um, are more likely to pop out. And uh, that's not a normal journalism thing to do, but... Oster does it pretty good, but well, I don't if I can jump in on that, especially since I would assume that everybody in here has access to a station or to telling stories on the radio. Um, frequent, and I've been hosting um, our shows at National Public Radio, uh, particularly Weekend All Things Considered, since 1986. Uh, recently, we had a very slow day, and I think that the news lead that day, it seems impossible that only two and a half months ago things were this slow, but I think the news lead was actually that Mount Vesuvius, uh, no, it wasn't Mount Vesuvius. This volcano was erupting again in Italy. Etna, Mount Etna. And uh, <laughs> we had a three-minute hole. And I said, well, let's do some writing. Let's just uh, tell the story of the gods of Etna and what they threaten the mortals. And, uh, you know, we played it with some music, and, and I wrote. Uh, my feeling about scripts is that there's one script of fact and then there's a, the script of fiction. Now, of course, in, in journalism, the, the script of fiction still has to be fact. But I always, uh, if I even think about the fact script, I try and throw that away and then think about the storytelling script. By now, I hope it's almost, you know, a seamless way of thinking after all these years. Uh, another time, uh, Cats was closing. Ha! Huh, Cats was closing, you know, another turning point in American life. And... Uh, we had, again, we always have holes in the show, particularly on weekend, all things considered, because the news was slower, the staff is smaller, you have to create a lot of your own material, which is why I love hosting that show. And uh, 
So instead of saying anything that, about Andrew Lloyd Webber, we were able to go back to the actual poetry and read, just read some of the wonderful uh, words of the, of the original uh, Here's something weird. Uh, we had a slow day. Uh, Jennings said to me, like, anything on cats closing? And I, uh, he wouldn't do it, but I, here's what I proposed. I said, well, there's this uh, veterinarian in Manhattan who keeps track of falling cats. He said, what? I said, yeah, so it's not cats closing, it's cats falling. Said, what? <laughs> I like so, that. Yeah, he's got this kind of a log of cats that fall from But did you get to do that on the television? See, no, no well, the, here's the story. The cats the fall from the high places. Any cat that falls from the 8th, 7th, 6th, and 5th floor gets really hurt or dead. High morbidity and really high mortality. <laughs> but cats that fall from the 9th to 63rd floor, there was a cat that fell 63 floors, come away with chipped teeth or something. So <laughs> uh, wondering why, it turns out this is just basic physics. It's, uh, it's terminal velocity. When the cat falls, it speeds up for a while. And then about eight floors down, it sort of starts coasting, and it can become like a squirrel. You know? <laughs> so Jennings looks at me and says, who are you? <laughs> but the message of this is there are going to be a lot of days where they're either very slow or whether you completely run out. You know, you think it's somehow your obligation to have a story to tell every day. If only I'd known you had that flying cat story, Robert. You would have had a phone call in a second. Well, you have to be careful that, you know, it's on days when you've got absolutely nothing, you have to itch the other part of you, which goes out and gets something anyway. Those are my favorite days. Those are my absolute favorite days as a radio host, days when it's slow and you can just invent. And I think that uh, while NPR often gets um, – uh, it really is more of a repository of imagination. And I, it's, it's, an, it's a word that I would just brand on everybody's head in this room – is because imagination and voice and sound, of course, really are the three essential components. Well, we thought we'd play uh, another piece. Uh, this piece is by us, and it uh, is different, very different from the pieces that we've been hearing, uh, mostly because there's no narrator that you can follow. There are lots of narrators within the piece, and it's certainly constructed with narration. But uh, our work primarily is narrator-less. Um, and ours came from a manicure salon, this piece that we're going to be playing. Davia is famous for getting lots of manicures and spends, Not that many. <laughs> <laughs> spends a lot of time, um, drags me along when I'm anywhere. there. Anywhere. Paris. And uh, she was told a story in a salon by a manicurist, which inspired uh, this piece and just led us down the path. Dave, why don't you tell the story of, that brought us to it? I had been getting manicures for a while uh, from a woman named Shirley, and we told each other a lot of different stories, and she told me about her daughter named Crystal. And one day I was looking at her and I was just thinking, Shirley and Crystal, she's from Vietnam. That wasn't the name she left Vietnam with. I just know it. So I asked her what her name was in Vietnam. Krasilovsky. <laughs> with a U. <laughs> so she proceeds to tell me her name in Vietnam was Hang. Hang with many other names along with it. And her name meant lonely woman looking at the moon. She left Vietnam. Her her mother brought her and her brother to the river to escape from Vietnam, and she didn't know that her mother was planning this, and it was in the middle of the night, and they had only the belongings they could carry, and at the water's edge in the chaos as they were going into the harbor, she was separated from her mother and her brother, and she wound up on a boat at age 13 by herself and wound up in a camp and then wound up in America by herself, and she fell apart. She sort of went crazy by the time she came to America. And she was sort of put in a sort of foster home hospital situation. And a lot of days she would just sit and watch television. And it was a black and white television, daytime TV. And she kept seeing this little girl on television who was so happy. And she'd watch her over and over again. And she said, I'm in America by myself. This is to herself. And I've got to be happy here. And the little girl's name was Shirley, and it was Shirley Temple. And she decided to name herself Shirley in honor of Shirley Temple and take this new name in this new country. And Jay and Nikki and I and many of you in this room were all incubating the Lost and Found Sound series, how sound shapes our history and 
sound affects our lives and what we hear and what we choose. And there was this woman watching and hearing Shirley Temple making this choice in her life. And that led us to the story French Manicure and to look into the lives of how one group of people, who I see a lot, um, and now Nikki does, uh, um, how sound, what they lost in Vietnam, what is the sound of Vietnam?